It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. I'd like to welcome my first guest to the show today, Sarah Roberton, and she is the Vice President of Corporate and Public Affairs at Inveronics Research in Ottawa. And I hope I got that correct. Is that Inveronics, Sarah? That, that's correct. It's Enveronics. And it's been around since uh, 1970, Enveronics, and it's uh, a research uh, uh, organization, a polling and marketing research uh, firm for based out of Toronto, but with offices in Ottawa and Calgary. And uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the kind of polling and the kind of research that you do? Sure. So we do all sorts of different research, but the goal really is to understand um, what the public and what um, stakeholders are thinking about issues and organizations and topics that are important to our clients. Okay, so of course we are in the throes of an election here in Canada, mm-hmm. and um, I'm sure your company has been looking at some of those things and some of the things that are important. And in particular, uh, you did you did uh, some research for Indigenous populations and the and the uh, uh, upcoming election. Earlier in September, I believe. Yep. So uh, we work with ABTN, the Aboriginal People's Television Network, and they were interested in understanding the Indigenous vote. What are Indigenous uh, voters going to do in the upcoming election? There are a lot of polls out there that talk about what Canadians are going to do generally, but because Indigenous peoples are less than 5% of the population, we don't really hear their voice as much in those polls. I think APTN thought it was important to kind of hear what Indigenous voters are thinking, what is on their mind when they're deciding how they're going to vote, and um, what they they think will, um, you know, how, how they plan to vote uh, in the upcoming election. Okay, and so what, uh, what kind of things uh, did you find out from that? Yeah, so it was interesting. Um, what we did, just so you understand how we went about the research, because as I said, uh, Indigenous peoples are less than five or less than five percent of the population, so um, it is difficult sometimes to kind of find find the population to speak to. So we did a survey of a thousand or a thousand Indigenous peoples of voting age, eighteen plus, and in the provinces. The interviews were conducted online, sourced from an online panel. So people who have already agreed to participate in surveys um, where we set quotas to ensure that the sample looks like the population by identity group, by where they live, by gender and age. We also did, uh, and we did 822 interviews in the provinces. Then we did an additional 200 interviews in the territories so that we could include the views of Indigenous people living in the territories as well. Those were interviews were conducted by telephone um, because there's no online panels available to us in the territories. Um, and then we merged the two data sets together to give us a national perspective uh, overall. Um, so there was, uh, there was a lot of different findings coming out of here. This was like a 10 to 12 minute survey. We talked upfront in the survey about the context in which they're making decisions, what's their outlook for their country in general, what's the outlook for Canada, but also for themselves personally. We talked about what um, what their vote is, uh, who they're planning to vote for, what they think of the different party leaders. And then we talked a little bit about what 
issues are driving their vote right now. Uh, one of the most interesting findings for me was the degree of uncertainty that Indigenous people ex express both about the outlook for Canada and for themselves and for their families. So we asked, is Canada head in the right or wrong direction? No consensus there, but more pessimism than optimism. So 43% said the economy is getting weaker compared to 16% who say the economy is getting stronger. And there was a lot of um, there was a lack of confidence, I should say, in their own personal financial situation. When we asked them if it was a good or bad time to buy the things they want or need, 70%, 7 in 10, said it's a bad time to buy. And 63% agreed with the statement that my household is struggling to make ends meet. So there's a fair amount of um, pessimism and, I guess, um, concern uh, that exists right now overall among Indigenous peoples about where things are at that could be influencing some of the results we saw later in the survey. Mm. Uh, just out of, of curiosity, did you did you look to get uh, participants both on and on off reserve when you say the territories and things? Were you approaching? Yeah, the, and did yeah, you... that was a, a specific um, objective of ours is to make sure that we included. Indigenous people living on reserve, those in urban centers, as, as well as those in rural but non-reserve areas. And was there any, perhaps it didn't make it into the survey, I'm just wondering, did you, did you find any in, interesting information from the answers or kind of things that you were getting back in, in terms of uh, differences between on and off reserve? Um, not so much. Well, it, it, where we saw the main difference was uh, among... Um, Inuit um, compared to First Nations Métis and therefore in rural areas because obviously the territories is primarily a rural uh, setting. Um, so there was um, you know, even lower confidence, uh, less, uh, more pessimism, less optimism among those, uh, those groups of the population. Um, not striking differences, I would say, between the reserve and ur ur urban population, at least on the questions that we asked in this survey. Okay. What about um, uh, age differences uh, be between different uh, youth and, and, and more mature uh, adults that you may have spoken to? Um, we, we didn't focus a lot on the age differences, mainly because they weren't um, so prominent um, mm. to really notice. Okay. Um, yeah, so I don't really have anything to add there. Okay. So, um, of course, we know that as, if we go back four years and we look at the at what happened during the last election, we know that, that record numbers of Indigenous people came out. We know that uh, they got a lot of support uh, behind the Liberal Party at that point in time. Um, so as we as we are now into the throes of this election, and even though, as you said, uh, the, this this survey was done earlier in September, so before some of the things such as the blackface issue, thing, those kind of things that happened. But um, what what did you notice, uh, or what did you hear from from voters uh, as as we approach this election that might be different yeah. from last one? Yeah. So we ask a question that says, um, if a Canadian federal election were held today. Which of the following parties would you vote for? We also asked them who they voted for in the last federal election. And what's really interesting is the drop in support for the Liberals from those who said that they uh, voted in um, 2015 compared to how they're going to vote today. So, um, sorry, back in 
back in 2015, about half of Indigenous people said they voted for the Liberal Party. That's dropped now to 21% who say that they're planning mm. to vote, uh, or they would vote uh, Liberal today if, a part, if the election were held today. Um, by comparison now, 26% say that they're going to be voting for the Conservative Party. So that's the largest proportion who are going to be voting for the Conservatives, uh, 21% for the Liberals, 17% NDP, 16% Green, and the remainder um, is about 4% who say another party and 16% who are undecided. So it's really that substantial drop to the Liberal Party that really stood out to us. Um, and where have where have those kind of votes gone? They've really spread themselves out among the the other three parties, three other major parties: the Conservatives, the NDP, and the Green. Mm. Now, um, the Conservatives, though, even on even uh, you know in general polls and uh, from just what we're hearing from this election, they've they've maintained their their uh, support. At least the base support has remained with the party uh, through this election. So um, there's a couple things to, to point out is that as much as these numbers, you know, they, they stand for themselves, they're a point in time, mm. they don't necessarily predict what the vote's going to look like. And part of that comes down to, we, we did ask a question about, are you, how likely are you to change your mind? Mm. Um, or, and overall, uh, 58% of um, Indigenous people said that they could change their mind. So as much as these numbers, you know, kind of stand on their own for that point in time in September, there's a lot of votes still in play and an openness and a willingness to possibly change where they decide to park their vote uh, next Monday. So there's still a lot of openness there to that. Um, When I look at the data, yes, right now it looks like the Conservative Party has kept the majority of their support from 2015, and only a few people have kind of migrated from the Liberal Party to the the, uh, the Conservative Party. Um, the other aspect that was really interesting that we dug into was approval levels of the various federal politicians, the, the party leaders. Because mm-hmm. that's, that's a perspective on this as well, as much as how who are you going to vote for, it has to do with the personalities and... and um, what they think of the different party leaders. Uh, Liberal Prime Minister Trudeau has the weakest net approval rating. Um, Right now, if you kind of take who those people who say they approve uh, and subtract those who say they disapprove, uh, his net approval is kind of in the minus level. Um, Same for Conservative leader Andrew Scheer. It's also in the minuses. The only positive approval ratings are for uh, Green Party leader Elizabeth May and for NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. Um, But in those last two cases, the smaller parties, the Green Party and NDP leaders, there's a lot of people who say that they don't really know enough to say. So what's interesting about this is that there's there's, I guess, concerns possibly about Trudeau and Andrew Scheer, but they are also the best known of the party leaders. People feel that they understand them the best. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's factoring into this whole decision-making process as well. Right. Uh, now, of course, we tend to uh, sometimes overlook that uh, Quebec is, is is part of this, and uh, there are Indigenous people, in fact, living in Quebec. Did your survey get into the province of Quebec? 
Yes, we did, of course, including Quebec. And yeah. and what did you find from that? Anything specific? So um, we did include uh, the option uh, for uh, a vote for the Bloc Québécois in Quebec, um, but uh, it was a very small proportion of the population, and we only obviously offered that option in Quebec since mm. there are no um, Bloc uh, representatives elsewhere in the country. Mm. Um, so in Quebec, it was a, a relatively small proportion and uh, less than the other two, the, the main major parties, Conservatives, Liberals, NDPs, and, and Greens. Mm. Okay, so now, you know, you said something and you, you repeated it a couple of times, and I thought it was very interesting if, looking back at the previous election and heading into this one, and now we're into the, 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 the last few days. Um, you mentioned pessimism. And I thought that was interesting because if you mentioned pessimism that a lot of people were feeling, that would stand to reason that people had at one point been feeling positive or had 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 some hope uh, that things might be different. I would agree with that. I I don't have anything to demonstrate it directly from Mm. the research, but I think that um, given the way that uh, the Liberal Party came into power, the promises they made, the, the emphasis that they put on indigenous, indigenous issues, reconciliation, quality of life in communities. I believe that there was likely a fair amount of optimism that things could change uh, over that time period. Part of what we might be seeing in terms of the low approval ratings for Trudeau and the, the desire to possibly move their vote to another party is that those expectations or that anticipation was not fulfilled. Mm. Um, that may be part of what's going on here, although, again, I don't, I don't have direct evidence of that. Right. Uh, what's yeah. interesting is that um, we did ask people uh, who, the, who they felt would be the best prime minister and whether that choice, if they named that person as best prime minister, was because they really liked that person or because they dislike the others more. <laughs> so those who said that they liked, who, who said that um, Justin Trudeau would be the best choice for prime minister in the, in the next election, um, they were about, uh, about split, I guess, on whether they really like him or whether they dislike, dislike the other options more. About 52% said they really like Trudeau as prime minister, and 47% said they like dislike the other choices available to them. Mm. For all the other party leaders, among those who chose, that party leader as best prime minister. In most cases, it was because they disliked the other options available to them. So it's a reaction. It's not necessarily that they're selecting them because they think they're going to do something differently, something better, something that makes a difference to their own lives, but simply that they have concerns about um, the other options available to them. That, to me, to a certain extent, is also evidence that, that, that the Liberal Party may not have met expectations or fulfilled expectations, and then people are looking elsewhere. Those who want to vote for Trudeau, it's because they really are, are um, supporting him. They like him. They like his approach. And that's another reason for me why I think we'll see some movement on these numbers um, once we reach Election Day, right. when people actually have to make a final decision. Right. You're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto. I'm your host, David Moses, and my guest is Sarah Robertson. She's the Vice President of Corporate and Public Affairs for 
Environics Research in Ottawa. It's a pleasure to have her on. We are talking about a survey that they did in Veronics for APTN that came out earlier in September uh, and uh, surveyed Indigenous people across the country and uh, the results that they found from that as we head into this election. And it's been quite interesting. Uh, Sarah, the one thing that you mentioned earlier in the conversation was that uh, up to 58% of, of, of uh, people that you spoke to said they potentially could change their mind. I thought that was very interesting, especially at such a high number. Yeah, it is very interesting that um, they're still trying to decide. And my my assumption would be that in between when we've done the poll and now and also Monday, they're looking at the various options and um, trying to decide where, 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 they will, uh, where they'll eventually uh, land. We did ask them what was going to influence their voting decision. Right? We presented them with a number of different issues, things like environmental issues, economic issues, quality of life issues. And we asked them how important each of those issues was in their decision to vote. So mm. How much impact is each of those issues going to have? The ones that rose to the top, in terms of the ones they said were going to make the most difference to, to their vote were water, water issues, uh, specifically drinking water quality, the cost of living, including food and housing in their communities, and also um, the government policies that impact their personal financial situation. So those three kind of rose to the top in terms of priorities that they're placing when they're deciding on their vote which links back to the findings I was talking about at the beginning about their concerns about their, the economy uh, and their own personal financial situation for themselves and their family. Mm. So those kind of quality of life issues, water quality issues kind of, uh, rise to the top for them. And that's what they're going to be looking at when they um, decide to vote. The other issues um, that we asked about were also important uh, nobody said they were unimportant, but they were of, I guess, a, a secondary priority. So things like uh, reconciliation, um, things like jobs, um, things like the health care that they receive, um, child welfare issues, justice issues. As I said, nobody said those were unimportant to their vote, but they're secondary to their to their own kind of personal uh, financial um, struggles uh, as well as water quality. You know, uh, when we we talk about Indigenous issues, um, there is always some additional things that that are included in terms of or going beyond just voting, uh, as any other Canadian would do. And, and of course, what that brings in always, uh, and I I think many people don't quite understand the relationship between Indigenous uh, people uh, and the uh, government or the Crown, if you like, um, is that there? There are there are there have been other things put in place even prior to the formation of Canada, uh, being treaty rights and treaties, uh, and Aboriginal title, and um, and then of course there's other things that are that are even more prominent and, and more current in the news, such as the missing uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women. And you you just touched on another one, which was the Truth and Reconciliation. Um, so, was did you get any comments uh, from people saying, you know, 
we don't we shouldn't have to vote because there is the treaty relationship that was established as a nation to nation kind of um, a relationship, which says that the federal or the crown is responsible for certain things which they have not been fulfilling uh, as their duty is. Yeah. So one of the questions we ask is how likely they are to vote in the upcoming federal election. And that that number is a little bit lower than we would generally see in the the um, the overall population. It's roughly in the um, seventy five to eighty percent range who said that they're definitely likely to vote um, in the next federal election seventy two percent so when when we ask people in a survey uh, that number usually who say that they're likely to vote is usually stronger than actual turnout levels. So even the 72% will be lower in terms of the number of people that actually show up at the polls. Mm. But in addition, that 72% is lower than what we typically see in terms of the level and tension in general public surveys, which is more around 80 to 90%. So what that's saying to me is that there is an intention to vote. It likely will not be fulfilled to the same level when, when, in terms of what happens next Monday, and it will be lower than the general public uh, uh, voting level. And part of that is likely due to this issue of treaty rights. Do we need to vote? Should we be voting? Is there benefit to us voting? Do we see that our issues are addressed um, mm. when we when we try to make our voice heard? Right. Yes, all things uh, very well said. Um, now, I just uh, want to go back to, to something you also said uh, earlier, and that is the uh, when looking at leaders, when trying to decide on, on voting, that, that uh, do you vote for or against something? And it mm-hmm. seems over time, in, in general terms, uh, that, uh, that many people, and perhaps it was different for Indigenous people in the last election because of the promises being made through the Liberal Party, that they had some hope and something to vote for, and, and that's why they came out to support them. But it, but it seems that if, if a party doesn't fulfill, if they don't come through with what they say they're going to do, people tend to sometimes perhaps vote against uh, rather than for something. Yes. And that's what the numbers are suggesting to us, is that right now the the turn away from the Liberal Party that we see in our data from early September may be a reaction um, to unfulfilled promises or what people see as unfulfilled promises. Um, But when they consider, uh, because there are so many people that are still undecided in our data, and when they consider the other options available to them, um, they're not at this point choosing them because they really like them, but it's a reaction to what else is available to them. That the, the, there's there's a whole bunch of issues in flux here, and um, we don't know how that is going to land actually on election day. But um, it, it 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 does appear that right now some of the decisions that are being made reflected in our data are a reaction mm-hmm. rather than a an actual choice right. for um for a for a different party. Right. Sarah, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Our time is, is wrapping up, but I want to ask you uh, a couple of general questions. First of all, uh, you you and your company uh, research First Nations, uh, Inuit, and Métis people. You've done that kind of thing, um, which is interesting. 
Um, how long have you been looking into First Nation and Métis and, and Indigenous uh, or Inuit uh, people's research? We've been doing this for about two decades, um, and I've had the um, privilege and honor to be doing this for that, for roughly about that amount of time. Um, we've had the opportunity to work with, and what we find works best is when we partner with Indigenous organizations themselves. So we do a lot of work with APTN. Um, we work a lot with the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business, and it has given us the opportunity to speak to Indigenous uh, peoples across Canada from all different identity groups um, in all different regions and on-reserve, off-reserve. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I think we've developed an expertise, but at the same time recognizing that uh, Indigenous research is best done with Indigenous involvement um, and also a very... Uh, clear understanding of the different perspectives that Indigenous people bring to to issues such as this, such as towards a federal election. Mm. I, I had a little bit of a smirk there. I just, just uh, you know, I was going to make an, uh, an off comment there about how, how novel it is to include Indigenous people in their own research. <laughs> <laughs> I know, and it does sound bad. One of our goals is, in working with these organizations, is to build capacity for Indigenous peoples to be doing their own research. Um, you know, we don't want to necessarily put ourselves up front. This is work that we did for APTN to support APTN mm-hmm. to be able to shine a light on, um, you know, put a mirror up to hear what Indigenous peoples are feeling as we enter this election. And I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for people to hear. Right. And Sarah, one last question for you. It's a general question. What attracts you to this? Uh, you've been doing this, as you say, for a while. And, uh, and I noticed on your, your uh, LinkedIn page there that it, you, you like to you translate research and insights and, and effective communications and approaches. Uh, what, what's attracted this to you? Why do you find it interesting? That's a great question, and, and I appreciate you asking it. I think what I really enjoy about it is that in our country there are um, people in power at all different levels and all different types of organizations, both government and non-government. It's very important that those people hear not just from lobbying groups or from other, you know, private organizations, non-profit organizations, but from people themselves about what it is that they want in their lives. Um, and I think that's what I enjoy the most and what I feel is most rewarding about this is regardless of whether it's an Indigenous person, a non-Indigenous person, um, I think it's important that everybody, all Canadians, have the right to hear, have their voices heard in this uh, and and to be reflected um, appropriately and, and not misinterpreted. Um, so that's what I enjoy doing. And I've just had a fantastic opportunity to meet so many um, Indigenous peoples over the years. Uh, I'm especially passionate about uh, ensuring that that voice is heard as well, that, that um, they have the opportunity to understand themselves through this type of research, but also that other people have a better understanding of the challenges they're facing, but also the huge amount of... Uh, amazing things that are happening in Indigenous communities across Canada. So I'm pretty passionate about that as well. <laughs> Nicely said. Thank you for uh, sharing that. And, and thank you so much for being on the show with us today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And, and thanks for the research and, and the work that you're doing. 
Thank you very much, David. It was a pleasure talking to you, too. And that is Sarah Robertson, and she is the Vice President of Corporate and Public Affairs for Enveronics Research in Ottawa. It's been a pleasure speaking with her today about the survey they did earlier in September for the Aboriginal People's Television Network on Indigenous people voting in this election, both First Nation, Métis, and Inuit people. And we're going to be right back, so please don't go away, right here on Element FM and Moment of Truth. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and you are listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto. Caroline O'Neill is back. Our Ottawa News and Parliament Hill eyes and ears. Caroline is on the line and ready to add to the confusion of this election as we enter the last few days. Caroline, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. How are you doing? And uh, yeah, how are you doing? Well, thanks for having me back, David. It's always great to be on, and things are, I think we're a little confused in Ottawa here as well. Things are looking still very deadlocked, and we have just days to go before people head to the polls. Yeah, and you know, it seems like we did talk a week ago, and yet that French debate seems so long ago already. And almost... Uh... It does. <laughs> but it, it was an interesting... Of... Sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was just going to say, but it was an interesting debate. Um, it was interesting to see the leaders and how they all performed during the French debate as opposed to the English debate. I really agree with you. I also think what was interesting, David, was the fact that 3 million people tuned in, which is more than double in 2015. Mm. And I think when you look at some of those numbers and compare them to the fact that 4.7 million people showed up for the advanced polls, we had record numbers at the campus polls, people are really paying attention. Mm -hmm. And I think we'll see that reflected even more so come Monday. And of course, now the talk, uh, at least over the last few days, has gone from uh, uh, coalition uh, and strategic voting, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But going back to that debate and the French debate, uh, I guess one of the things that is really, uh, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure if it's surprising people, but uh, if you remember when, um, when we spoke about the English debate, uh, I had mentioned at the time, I thought that that Eves, that, uh, the bloc leader, w w I thought I was impressed with him a little bit. I thought he came off very uh, uh, straightforward about what he was talking about, what he wanted. And, uh, of course, the bloc is now up uh, some 20-odd percent, I believe. Exactly. Yves-François Blanchet is polling incredibly well in Quebec, which I think would be making both Maxime Bernier and Justin Trudeau very worried. And I also think the rest of Canada is looking to see what's going on in Quebec. What are people upset about? How are people voting? Why is Mr. Blanchet resonating so much with voters? And he certainly had an advantage. Mm -hmm. He was at, I think many would argue, a disadvantage at the English debate, but still did manage to come across quite well. But I think when you have a home language advantage, it just makes things that much more easier. Now, at the same time, he was debating with Justin Trudeau and Maxime Bernier, who are also very capable debaters. But I think people like Elizabeth May and Jagmeet Singh, who often do have a really easy time in the English debate, were kind of fighting a little bit in a different sense. Mm. Now, again, uh, when we when we go back and, and look at that election and or sorry, not the election, but the uh, the, the uh, French debate and uh, see what's happening now, uh, I, I, I can just imagine the people uh, working for each of those parties, as you said, with the with the uh, support now going towards the bloc. And I think initially, you know, we weren't talking about the bloc much at all at the beginning of this election. It was almost like, you know, maybe they weren't going to be, a, a, you know, a force to reckon with or they weren't going to place well. 
And, and now I'm sure that they're crunching numbers uh, left, right and center to try and come up with what's the scenario going to, to present on Monday. Exactly. And you're right. We really weren't talking about the block. We were talking about things like SNC-Lavalin. We were talking about, you know, a conservative majority. I think where things have changed, it's shifted in a real way. And it's interesting that we are talking about the block so much because Yves-Francois Blanchet has made it very clear he has no interest in propping up a minority. He has stated that his sole interest is whatever is in the best interest of Quebec. And I think the fact that now we are looking at Mr. Blanchet as such a key player could make things very interesting come Monday. Mm-hmm. Now, I heard some information recently that because of that, because of the bloc support that is, that is coming up in, in Quebec, um, and that, of course, is, is uh, potentially taking away from some of the NDP support that was in the province over the last election. For Jagmeet saying Quebec is a real, it's that's a tough right. It's a tough province for him. You know, I think I think Mr. Singh had a really good debate Thursday night. Mm-hmm. I think that he came across really well, and I think that was really important. But he does face, I think, a very different set of circumstances than any of the other leaders. One of the most contentious bills right now has to do with religious symbolism, and we've seen Mr. Singh really kind of try and find that proper footing, right? Try to see if he can stand with the leaders or differentiate himself on that. And he's also seen the leaders go after him in a really specific, targeted way when they talk about these things. And just today, he was actually in Hudson. He was in Hudson, Quebec, which was the birthplace of Jack Layden, one of his predecessors who really mobilized people around the NDP. So I think he is taking creative steps to find ways to resonate with the people of Quebec. And I think that campaign stop today was a really good strategy, especially to be there with Olivia Chow. But I do also believe that this will be his last campaign stop in Quebec ahead of the election. Mm. Now, of course, as we look uh, as we look towards the election, and something I've been hearing more of, which we, which is, it's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of ironic that we're we're starting to hear a little bit more of this now, which is, of course, indigenous issues. Um, climate crisis seems to sort of have fallen off the mark to some degree. We're not hearing as much about Elizabeth May, uh, and yet it is. The one climate crisis is the one issue that affects every party, every person, and is is something that affects the entire planet. So you're right that we're not talking about it in maybe the way we were, especially in light of the climate strikes and in light of Elizabeth May's performance in the English debate. But I think it is still very much a presence. Actually, tomorrow in Ottawa, one of our bridges is scheduled to be shut down for an Extinction Rebellion sit-in, and that's scheduled to last for quite some time tomorrow. And that's for a call to action on climate change. And interestingly enough, Greta Thunberg is making her way to Alberta, Mm. where some Alberta officials have said they're not even interested in meeting with her because they don't think she understands how oil impacts the economy there. It will be incredibly interesting to see what that visit is like, Mm. to see what officials she ends up meeting with. Perhaps Rachel Notley will take a meeting with her if she'll be going to school. So I think the way we've been talking about climate has shifted, but it could just be because some of that perhaps frenzied momentum is slowing a little bit. But as you said, it is still something that does impact everyone. And that was something that Mr. Singh highlighted in the debate Thursday as well, where he referred to Bernier, Scheer, and Trudeau as Mr. Pipeline. Right. You know, it's interesting, again, how uh, it comes back to economy and the impact on economy over the climate, that we all have to breathe the air, we all have to drink the water, and we all have to live on this planet if it if it's, uh, uh, provides a living environment for us. Uh, 
And, you know, as I think you might have pointed out uh, some of the signs that were being shown at some of these, uh, um, these supports uh, that uh, there is no, there are no jobs uh, in a dead planet or something like that. So Exactly. And there's no planet B, right, which mm-hmm. is something people talk about. And also, when the Liberals first introduced the carbon tax along with the rebate program, that was something that the Environment Minister, Catherine McKenna, really stressed, right? there is a cost to climate change. And of course, we've seen that become incredibly contentious, especially with the Conservative government. But I think that is a point that stands, right? The idea that climate change will impact us and it could have a financial cost to us. Mm-hmm. I think in a way, the parties, perhaps they do see that baseline, but they all approach it in such different ways that it has become incredibly polarized. Yes. Um, now, uh, strategic voting... Strategic voting, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, of course, it's all uh, conjecture and it's all hearsay about what's going to happen on Monday. And as as you know, uh, uh, Nick Nanos uh, is uh, is the guy who says the only poll that matters is on Election Day. And um, have you had any conversations with Nick uh, recently about what's going on? So Nick and I chatted a little earlier on and, you know, he mentioned to me that he really characterized this election as not voting for somebody, but as Mm -hmm. voting against someone. Mm -hmm. And I think if anything highlighted a strategic vote, it would certainly be that. And I've also I think I've just heard from different electors and voters. I was chatting with a couple over the weekend and they were very insistent that they were going to vote strategically. And they felt that anybody who wasn't voting strategically was failing up to set up the world with a liberal leader, which if you think about that is a very strong statement to have. Mm. I also, again, think it highlighted how so many voters are approaching this from very different mindsets and very different perspectives. And I do wonder how many we've truly heard before we go to the polls Monday. Um, And then there are also a lot of initiatives to kind of help propel strategic voting. There's actually a website, David, called votewell.ca, and that breaks down strategic voting. And it's by a software engineer in Toronto, and it basically tells people what their strategic vote should be based on their writing. Hmm. Interesting. We'll have to, Strategic uh, voting is very interesting. Yeah. Um, now, uh, if, for instance, uh, you know, as, as uh, again, as uh, uh, Jagmeet Singh w- would say, you know, vote with your conscience. This is what he was saying, right, in, in terms of the, the whole idea about the coalition and, and those kind of things that he was talking mm-hmm. about. He's backed away from now, of course, but he does say vote with your conscience, um, and uh, and he, of course, he is referring to the NDP. But I'm wondering if if the if the bloc was a sleeper at the beginning of this election, uh, and and we've sort of backed away to some degree of, of talking about the uh, the Green Party and the climate crisis, uh, and people are going to vote strategically or vote with their conscience. Um, I wonder. Uh, I'm just wondering to what degree that the environment will play a role in that as people go to uh, to cast their vote. You know, I think that's a really interesting point. I think especially for a lot of young voters, like the voters who are out in droves voting on campuses, or for the people who will be making their first ballots, I think that climate change is something that is really important to them. And they will be looking for those leaders who resonate. Mm-hmm. Now, somebody like Elizabeth May, I think her key message has certainly been the environment and climate change. But Elizabeth May herself can also be a very polarizing figure. I don't think she's done a lot to mobilize young people, for instance, and often you do see young people at the forefront of a lot of climate change debates. So it will be interesting to see if that changes in this election. And it'll also be interesting to see if maybe there's another environmental message that does resonate with people more. 
like the NDP. I think too, you know, I think that perhaps one of the biggest debates that we could see heading into Monday as the key issue solidifies itself this week could be that divide between those who believe that they should be voting strategically versus those who do want to vote for the party that they truly believe in. Mm. Yeah. Now, listen, the other thing, uh, Caroline, as we know, uh, there were the advanced polls over the last weekend, which, of course, uh, turned up some interesting information in that uh, I believe it was it was up around 29 percent from the previous election. Exactly. That's a really high number. I I actually cast my advanced ballot Friday because I knew Monday would be a bit of a busy day for us here. (laughs) And, you know, there were 4.7 million Canadians who took the time to vote. Mm -hmm. That is a very large number. And again, when you look at the fact that people have been tuning into the debates, when you look at the fact that 100,000 young people voted on campuses, I think that it is safe to say, even if people maybe aren't as happy or as hopeful as they have been in previous elections, they're still watching they're still listening, and they are still participating. Right. Yes, no time to be lethargic, I guess, uh, with some of these issues that we are facing, such as the, the climate crisis. Now, what, what's interesting also, though, we should say that, that they, did, uh, um, they did extend the hours uh, for that, uh, and that did, they say, account for some of that increase. Exactly. And I think that's something, David, that we'll always be working on, the idea of how do we make our polls as accessible as possible. I think sometimes our system has been set up to look like it's very difficult and that only a certain person should vote. But again, elections are about people, but they are not about the leaders. I do believe that they're about the the electorate. So that's about every single person in this country. And it is on our systems to make sure that every single person can reasonably cast a ballot. So whether they know about the advanced polls whether they know that they can have a friend validate for them if they don't have proper ID or if they've moved writings. Um, And even there was a bit of an interesting debate here in Ottawa where some councillors were pushing for public transit to be made free on voting day and other other members pushed back on it and that debate wasn't had. And it was interesting to hear all of the different responses and views that people had on the idea of making transit free on a day like election day. Mm. Um, yeah, so Caroline, from my, my previous uh, uh, interview that we had uh, just before you came on the air, uh, one, of the, one of the pieces of information that they, uh, they pointed out was looking at, uh, even though we're deadlocked with this liberal and conservative uh, lead, uh, with, of course, the NDP and Greens uh, coming up, uh, even the Bloc Quebecois rising up there. But uh, one of the things they, that she looked at in the survey was, uh, looking at the leaders and and saying, if you could, which of the leaders would you do you like or would you vote for? And what was interesting is both the liberal and the conservative leaders uh, were less uh, less likely to be looked at, whereas both the NDP and the Greens were both in the plus side of looking at that. So it, it's interesting to consider that we have these two lead parties, the Liberals and Conservatives, which are generally uh, are what people look at, but we have two leaders in the lesser parties that people are really looking to and admiring to some degree or saying, yeah, I wish I could, I, I like these people. You know, I find that so interesting, and I also find it almost a little funny in a way because we've been talking so much about this idea of strategic voting right and kind of voting for one party to oust another, and you have these people who are almost very wistful and wishful saying, I wish I could vote for Jagmeet Singh, or I wish I could vote for Elizabeth May. Mm. Obviously, if you're not in their writings, you can't, but you could vote for their party. Mm -hmm. Nothing is stopping you um, if you feel that strongly about the leaders. And then I also think that is perhaps a very 
strong indictment on the two leaders of the two main federal parties. I think for Justin Trudeau, especially when you're the prime minister, you are under a very large spotlight. And that does mean that while you are able to highlight things that went well, people are also able to highlight the things that did not go well. And I think that is something that he is certainly suffering from. And then I think with Andrew Scheer, Andrew Scheer has had a very tough go to garner inspiration as a leader. And then especially as he continuously faces off against Maxime Bernier, I think people aren't sure where Andrew Scheer truly stands in some of his beliefs and values. Mm. Have you heard any anything more about, I, I'm not sure if we spoke about this last week, about the idea that, that the... Um, uh, the the conservatives are already looking at a potential per, uh, replacement for Andrew Scheer. Did you hear anything about that? So I do know that there was a story that was going around at the time. I haven't heard anything about that since. Mm. And I think a lot of that will depend on what happens election day, right? Mm. If they're defeated by a liberal majority, it would certainly not be shocking if a new leader was in the works. If there is a minority situation or a coalition situation, it might not be the best time to look into a new leader because people will be scrambling to see if there is a way to form government. And I do think that perhaps it could be a weakness if there's a leader on their way out. Now, there are plenty of strong conservatives in that party. There were plenty of strong conservatives who also ran for leadership. I think Lisa Wright's a really great example of that. I think she had a very good mm-hmm. House session. And obviously, Maxime Bernier was one of those people as well, and he's gone off on his own. <laughs> right. Well, the door might always be open to come back, right? <laughs> um, listen, so the other thing, speaking of that um, weakness, you mentioned weakness, and I'm just wondering what your take is on how this election is rolling out in terms of weakness. And what I mean by that is because of the deadlock of the parties, because of the way things are turning out with this insert uncertainty that we're seeing, uh, you know, it seems like there is a lack of belief or a lack of faith, not only in the leader, but maybe in, in the parties that we're seeing uh, traditionally that, that is casting doubt for the voters. Absolutely. Um, You know, when people don't vote or when they spoil a ballot, right, they're not they're indicting the system as a whole. And I do think that, you know, there are things we've kind of talked about to death, like SNC-Lavalin, but I think SNC-Lavalin did raise a bigger issue about party politics and can they go too far. And I do think, again, right, you're not really when you cast a ballot, you're technically not voting for Justin Trudeau, Jagmeet Singh or Andrew Scheer, Elizabeth May, unless you're in their writings. You're voting for a specific person. And I think people are feeling frustrated in the fact that they don't think that person actually represents their interest as a constituent. They represent the party. Mm -hmm. That's why I think we're seeing so many independent politicians right now. We're also seeing a push to have those independent politicians reelected. That's also why we even have parties that satire, that are satire of the system, like the Renosaurus party, right? To kind of Mm -hmm. poke fun at some of the, some of the quirks of party politics. And Mm -hmm. I do agree with you too. This, 2015 was very hopeful. I was in university at the time, and I remember young people were so excited to vote. And again, I think people are certainly paying attention. They're certainly aware, but I don't think that sense of hope is steeped in this election. Mm. Uh, What about swing ridings, you know, especially where Indigenous people, and I guess that's why we're hearing more about the Indigenous uh, voters because they do have some some control or, or some impact on on the way some writings can turn out. Uh, and so we're looking back, uh, hear more talk about turning back to the Indigenous voters and, and what's happening. Are they going to come out? Are they going to vote? And, uh, and, and uh, what is your sense? What are you hearing? Anything in that regard? 
Yeah, well, and I mean, first of all, Indigenous voters are not a monolith, right? Everybody has very different reasons for voting. Mm -hmm. And especially, like you said, based on where people live, right, there could be issues that are really pertinent to some communities that might not matter as much to other communities or be a real need. But I think Indigenous voters played a huge part in the last election, and I think all party leaders would do well to remember that. And I also think that a lot of Indigenous files were not treated the way people thought they would be. And I think that will impact how people vote as well. And David, you and I had a really interesting conversation about a nation-to-nation agreement and about the idea of dual citizenship and about Indigenous peoples who don't feel that they need to partake in a system in a country where they don't see themselves as a citizen. So Mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of different issues at play. Now, on the flip side to that, again, I have heard from other young Indigenous voters who are also saying that voting is in a way harm prevention, right? That is your chance to prevent a certain party if you're worried about it. And it's your chance to hire a person who you think could kind of work towards a change. So I think that people are looking at things in such a different way. And also there are so many different Indigenous candidates running across the parties too. They're very high, um, one of the highest turnouts we've had for Indigenous candidates that I think people will be looking for leaders they can trust, but I think they'll also be looking They'll be looking to see if there is somebody who will take the issues that matter seriously. Mm. Uh, perhaps Jody Wilson-Raybould uh, set the bar with that one. <laughs> well, and you could certainly see you could certainly see why, right? And mm-hmm. you both, I mean, there have been many other things as well. I think Chief Rudy Turtle is another great example, right? He would have had lots of time to work with the Liberal government over the past four years, and I think the fact that he is running with the NDP would be an indictment of how the Liberals have handled certain things, and especially the crisis that Grassy Narrows itself faced. And then you're seeing this across the board. The Liberals are running a young Métis candidate up against Andrew Scheer. There are so many different um, different ridings to watch. And I do think that Jody Wilson-Raybould certainly, I think she's definitely played a role. And I think she also played a role in how different Indigenous voters might be viewing the government's treatment of Indigenous peoples, and especially the government's treatment of Indigenous peoples with lots of power. And as a cabinet minister, Jody Wilson-Raybould had very different access than other people in this country. Yeah, so it's going to be very interesting to see what happens with her independent uh, uh, candidacy uh, this Monday as well. So I guess, you know, we're starting to wind down, Caroline, but uh, I'm wondering if there's if there's something we haven't touched on that you feel is very important to mention that uh, as we look forward to the uh, election Monday on the 21st uh, that uh, we should be aware of. Well, first of all, I would certainly say if you haven't had the chance to vote, definitely make the time to do so if that's something that you you want to do, because that is a really good way to have your say in how this country and the system is run. I have heard, though, David, a lot of questions about a minority government and what that means. Mm -hmm. And I thought it might be helpful to just have a quick little primer of what that could look like come Monday or how we get to a minority. Yeah, please. Um, So in order for a party to have a majority in this country, you need 170 or more members of parliament elected. So I believe in 2015, the Liberals had 177. And that's because of how many seats are in Parliament. A minority situation will happen when a party has the most seats, but not a majority, and then they try to govern. So we could see some cross-party agreements. We could see some vote-by-vote support. This was something we saw with Stephen Harper. We saw this as recently as 2011. And then from there, you could see something like a coalition government, which was a big talking point of Mr. Singh's earlier this week. And that would see different parties join together to try and form more seats. But that is incredibly rare. 
The other thing that I think is worth noting is that in a minority situation, it is often the incumbent who does kind of have first crack at forming government. So in this case, that would mean that Justin Trudeau would have first swing. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I think uh, that's just one thing to touch on. And, and you know, uh, I guess uh, I, I might have been hesitant to ask that question. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but, of course, it is a very, very real possibility that that is exactly what might happen. Now, of course, there's, you know, that's fraught with all kinds of other things, uh, with minority and, uh, and, and not only parties working together, but also parties not wanting to work together and uh, how that might stifle uh, the country or, or things to accomplish. Oh, exactly. We've heard a lot about how minority politics can lead to good policy making and working together and being more accountable to your constituents. There are also plenty of former politicians who have been speaking over the past few weeks who have experienced minority governments, and they paint a very different picture. Some of them are talking about the fact that behind the scenes, things were very devious, that bills didn't get passed, that clocks were run out, mm-hmm. or that there was very pretty language and things that weren't followed through. And I think, again, I, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know what would happen in a minority situation. I think a lot of it would also depend on who is elected and who comes together to work as a team. I think that's what it really is dependent on. And then I think from there, if things don't go well, that is on the electors to let people know that they're unhappy with how the parties did work together. But it certainly it wouldn't be a perfect system. I think it would, it would be a different way of doing business. And, and then, of course, there is the the support and how it is it is split. For instance, let's say the Bloc Québécois gets uh, you know a very large turnout uh, and, and and backing in the, the province of Quebec, and how that will uh, affect the not only the split of the parties, but also how 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 and what happens uh, once the parties are uh, sitting down around uh, the tables and, and trying to work together. Exactly. And as we mentioned earlier, Yves-Francois Blanchet has made it very clear that his number one priority is to Quebec. And it could mean, again, right, that there won't be easy policy discussions. I also think that there will also have to be some concessions on Blanchet's side because he will essentially be operating alone. Um, So it'll it'll be interesting to see how that bears. And I think there are a lot of people who do wonder what that could mean for the future of Quebec and then obviously what that would mean for the future of this country. Yeah, absolutely. There's always those uh, thoughts to consider. Caroline, it's always a pleasure speaking with you on these issues. And it's uh, in, in, in some ways, I'll be sorry that uh, the election, election will be over so we don't have these conversations. We're gonna... I was going to say, David, I'll miss this as well. <laughs> and I've been speaking with Caroline O'Neill. She is our Ottawa correspondent and news person at 95.7, our sister station. And she has been providing us with election updates uh, for the last few weeks. It's been a pleasure speaking with her here on Moment of Truth. And uh, we look forward to speaking with Caroline on other issues as they come up later in other issues uh, moving forward. Thanks for listening. It's been a pleasure having and bringing this information to you for our election. Monday, October 21st is Election Day. Get out and cast your vote. It counts. That's our show for today. Miigwech, Winishi for listening, and we'll see you later. Onagiha.